All right, friends, let's go. So we have been in this series, as I said er earlier, on contending prayer. Contending prayer, right? To contend, to, to, to kind of strain, to strive, to, to war against, to fight, right? The, if, you have a, if you have a boxing match, you've got these two, the two contenders, right? The fighters. Contending prayer is a fighting prayer. Fighting prayer. It's a warring prayer, right? There's different types of communication. I've used this analogy every single week so far, and I think, I think it works perfectly, right? You have soldiers in the barracks, and they're hanging out, and they're playing Xbox, that's one type of conversation. It's a normal, everyday conversation. But you take those same men, those same women, and you put them on the field of battle, and the rounds start flying. The conversation is not the same. That's a different type of conversation. And we have been talking about there's certain times when God begins to press on his church to say, man, the conversation has to change. When, when we look at the world and we see everything falling apart and everything blowing up, man, the conversation has to change. We've said it again and again and again, when the, when the world takes to the streets to riot, the church must take to its knees and continue prayer. Now is the time for continuing prayer. We must begin to war in prayer. And we war for the things that God already loves. We ask God to accomplish the things that he already wants to accomplish. Right? Number one, the first thing we talked about is contending for ourselves. We said the reality is that for so many of us, Right now, we are in a season of life where we are tired, we are weary, we are just worn out, stressed out, anxiety is high. There's so many things going on. 2020 has been a, insane. Maybe the best thing we can do is begin to contend for ourselves. Right, we talked about that passage where Peter says um, and that God will restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish us. So let's begin to pray that prayer together. God, would you restore me? God, would you strengthen me? God, would you confirm me? God, would you establish me? Friends, the God of all things loves you more than you could possibly begin to imagine. Oh, how he longs to answer that prayer in your life. Oh, how he longs to answer that prayer. How he longs to restore you, to be the one who strengthens you, to be the one who confirms you, to be the one who establishes you. God longs to do that in your life. He loves you. And then last week, we began to talk about contending for one, beginning to pray for the people in our life, the person that we love, but they don't love Jesus yet. Begin to contend for the lost. Begin to say, Father, would you save them? Spirit, would you, would you, would you stir their heart? Would you create just anxiety in their life that they might not rest until they rest in you? Would you keep them awake at night until they say, until they cry out to you in desperation? I, I contend for my one. I want them to know Jesus. I want them to love Jesus more than they love anything in this world. Friends, that's what God wants. Christ came to seek and save the lost. That's what he wants to do. He wants to rescue. He wants to redeem. He wants to, to usher them into eternal life and out of eternal darkness. We are contending for the things that are near to God's heart. Oh, how he wants to answer those prayers. He wants us to contend for the things that are near to his heart. And that brings us to today. Perhaps the thing that is most near to his heart. His own church. His church. Today we come to the third topic of contending prayer, contending for the church. And just like you, and just like the lost, he loves his church. 
He loves his church. Paul put it this way famously in Ephesians 5. He said this, he says, Husbands, love your wives. Husbands, love your wives. This morning the sermon is not about marriage, but husbands, love your wives. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water of the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. He loves his church. He loves his church more than any husband has ever loved his wife. He's given himself up for her. He, he wants to present her to himself without, with, in splendor, with, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing. He loves his church. He created the church by his blood. He sustains the church by the power of the cross. He loves his church. And when the church struggles to walk in the power of the Spirit, he, he alone, awakens it. There is nothing that Jesus loves in the, in, more in the world than his church. He's given his life for her. He wants to move mightily through her and bring about his fame and glory to all nations through her. Yet there's nothing, there is nothing that Satan wants more than to divide, break down, and destroy the very thing that Christ loves most. It's Satan's number one target. This right here. This right here. Satan wants to divide and break down and destroy the very thing that Christ loves most. Therefore, we contend for her as we war in prayer. We must contend for the church. We must contend for the church. A few weeks ago, um, we talked about that, that passage where, where, where Paul is talking about Satan and what Satan wants to do. And then he goes into the armor of God and how the armor of God is this thing that kind of helps protect us against Satan. And then he goes into prayer. And Paul says this in that Ephesians 6 passage. He says, praying at all times in the spirit with all power and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. So Paul's talking about how do we fight this fight. He says, making supplication for all the saints, kind of earnestly begging God on behalf of all the saints, on behalf of the church. He says, how do we fight against Satan? How do we war against this? We make supplication for the church. We contend in prayer for the church. And right now, there's no doubt that the church, the big C church, the church around the world needs your prayers. The church in China needs your prayers. The, the church in Africa needs your prayers. The church in Europe needs your prayers. The church in India Where's Naveen? Come on, baby. The church in India needs your prayers. And perhaps right now, more than ever, the church in America needs your prayers, needs contending prayers. We have seen God answer prayers like this before. Again and again and again and again, God answers the prayers for his church. In the 1600s, 
the church in England was warring over which church was the true church. Which church is going to be the church? The revolution of 1688 established the Church of England as the reigning church of the country. Other religions, such as Catholicism and Judaism and Puritanism, were subsequently suppressed. The Church of England became the church. This is it. This was more of a political thing than a religious thing. It was more political than religious. You see, everyone in town now attended the same church. You didn't get to say what kind of church you wanted to go to. You weren't like, man, I like this church over here. I like what they believe, or I like this person's preaching, or I like the music over there. No, everybody went to the same church. There was one church in town, the Church of England, and that's where you went. It was the church. There were no denominations, no other options. And at first glance, this sounds good. I meet people all the time that say, man, denominations are bad. There should only be one true church. We've got to get rid of denominations. Denominations are proof. They're proof that that's not the real church. I hear people say that stuff all the time. The reality is, this is not a new idea. It's not a new idea. That has actually been tried again and again and again throughout history to get rid of denominations and say, okay, there's only one church. It's been tried again and again and again over thousands of years. And it never works. It never works. Politically, it sounds like a good idea. And it is. It's easier. If you can get everybody to kind of go to the same place and believe the same thing, it's easier to kind of control the masses. But the same thing happens every single time anywhere in the world where this is attempted. The same thing happens every time. Two things. Number one, there's corruption at the top. Anywhere you see this attempted, follow the money, follow the power, follow the fame. It all flows to the top. There's corruption at the top again and again and again. There's a process of manipulating the people on the bottom. And on the bottom, the people, the the everyday commoners, the, the attendees, the congregants, right? There's a complacency at the bottom. So you have corruption at the top and complacency at the bottom. And the same thing happened in the church in England. The people in the church of England in the 1600s, right, over, over decades, they just become more and more and more complacent. Church becomes a spectator sport. Everybody in the neighborhood's going to church on Sunday. And so that's what you do. You just go. And you go through the motions. You sing the same songs that your parents sang and their parents sang and their parents sang. And the guy gets up and gives the same boring message that he gives every single week. And it's kind of complacency, just going through the motions. There's no spiritual life. There's no spiritual vibrancy. It's just dry. You're just doing what your parents did. And they just did what their grandparents did. And you're doing the same thing every week, week in and week out. It's a lukewarm faith. And this went on for decades. And it set the stage for what is known as the first great awakening. The first great awakening. The first great awakening had uh, several key players. You had the Wesleys in Europe. You had George Whitfield in London. And you had Jonathan Edwards here in the United States. Whitfield was perhaps the greatest preacher of all time, easily within the top five. Whitfield was the preacher. He changed the way church was done in an entire nation. An entire nation. He preached on average 13 sermons a week. 13 sermons a week. In 34 years of ministry, it is estimated that George Whitfield preached 18,000 times. 
You can't wrap your mind around it. You can't wrap my mind around it. The last sermon he preached was only 24 hours before his death. 24 hours before his death. It was an open-air discourse that lasted two hours. And you think I go long. Come on, baby. At a time when the church building was a sacred thing, Whitfield became famous for outdoor, what they called open-air preaching. He would preach in fields around London, and crowds would gather 10, 20, even 30,000 people. He would preach to daily with no amplified sound. Imagine that. Benjamin Franklin once walked off an area while Whitfield was preaching, and he estimated that Whitfield could preach up to 100,000 people with just his voice. The man was incredible. It's incredible. The gospel exploded in Europe because of George Whitfield. Everybody wanted to come here and preach. In the meantime, in the U.S., in New England, a guy by the name of Jonathan Edwards, who is known as the greatest theologian in the history of America, was preaching. His works at Yale University Library make up 73 volumes. Brilliant man. Brilliant man. He was a huge supporter and defender of the Great Awakening, and most notably, he preached a sermon entitled, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God which was the gasoline on the fire that was the Great Awakening. When he preached that sermon, it was printed and reprinted and reprinted and distributed throughout all of the Americas at the time. All of the Americas. And people everywhere came to Christ by reading that sermon. And when Whitfield came to the Americas, and coupled with Jonathan Edwards, the church, it just blew up. It just blew up. It was insanity. The church was suddenly alive. You could not get enough. They wanted the preaching every night. This is why Whitfield preached 13 times a week. They couldn't get enough. They, all people wanted was to hear Whitfield preach. They didn't care about anything else. Every night of the week, they could not get enough of the word. They could not get enough of prayer. They could not get enough of the gospel. Couldn't get enough of the spirit of God. Jonathan Edwards called revival the acceleration of the normal work of the Holy Spirit. He says the Holy Spirit's going to do all of this stuff anyways, but there are times when the church begins to contend in prayer and the Spirit shows up and accelerates his work. Pastor in New York City, John Tyson, John, John Tyson kind of took that phrase, the accelerated work of the Holy Spirit, and he said it this way. He said it's when the Holy Spirit saves the number of people that are going to be saved in, in a 20-year period and does it in two months. It's this massive work of the outpouring of the Spirit of God. One sermon of Edwards goes viral, and buildings cannot contain Whitfield, and it spills into the public square. And when, when, the, when revival in the church spills into the public square, that's where awakening happens. When the Spirit pours out His power in the church and people are saying, man, I cannot get enough of the Spirit. I cannot get enough of prayer. I cannot get enough of the Word of God, right? And this awakening happens in the church or this revival happens in the church and it spills into the public square. Awakening takes place. And that's what happened 
in the first great awakening. It changed the course of the United States of America. The great awakening shaped our country. But where does it all begin? Where does it all start? It starts in the church. It always begins in the church. You see, some say, isn't it sad? Isn't it sad that the church in the United States is in decline? Isn't it sad that the nominal faith, this meaningless faith, is killing the faith of the next generation? What these people don't understand is this. In order for the church to experience awakening, it must first be asleep. In order for the church to experience awakening, it must be asleep. The church in America right now is spiritually sleepy. It's fat, it's happy, and it's tired. It's like me after Thanksgiving, right? I've got the turkey, I've got the stuffing, i got the potatoes, the tryptophan is kicking in, and I'm ready for a nap. The church in America, it's full, man. It's, it's wealthy. It's full of power. It's full of influence, but spiritually sleepy. Spiritually sleepy. This is when God, by the power of the Holy Spirit, produces revival and awakening Revival in the church and awakening in the public square. We must begin to contend for this. Now is the time. Now is the time to begin to contend. And it begins by contending for the church. Prayer must be the indicator of our church. It must be the thing that says we're doing well or we're not doing well. Charles Spurgeon, the great prince of preachers, put it this way. He said, prayer meetings were the arteries of of the early church. Through them, life-sustaining power was derived. If you, want, if you want power and you want life in your church, those prayer gatherings got to be full, baby. they got to be full. The condition of the church may very accurately be gauged by its prayer meetings. So prayer is the, what he says, the grace-o-meter, and from it, we may judge the amount of divine working among the people. If God is near a church, it must pray. And if he's not there, one of the dying first tokens of his absence will be a slothfulness in prayer. My boy Dietrich Bonhoeffer put it this way. He said, a congregation that does not pray for the ministry of its pastor is no longer a congregation. And the pastor who does not pray daily for his congregation is not a pastor at all. Prayer is the ministry of the saints. And if we want to see God awaken his church, we must contend for that. So what should we pray for? What do we pray for? Let me give you just a few things, and then we'll get warm, okay? Let me give you just three things, then we'll get warm. First is this. Um, I want to do this. I want to look at how Paul prayed for his churches. Paul was constantly contending for the early church. Churches that he was involved in planting, churches that he was involved in establishing, he was constantly in prayer for them. First, the church in Thessalonica. Paul writes this in 2 Thessalonians 1.11. He says, to this end, we always pray. Always. Paul has always prayed. To this end, we always pray for you that our God may make you worthy of his calling 
and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power. By his power. Oh, that the Spirit would pour out power upon us. That it would be the Spirit of God that gives us our strength and resolve for every good work of faith, not our own power for his. So number one is this. When we see Paul pray for in Thessalonica is this, that the Spirit poured his power upon them. That it would be not their own strength, but the, but the working of the Spirit. And so prayer number one, if we're going to contend for flourishing grace, is that the Spirit would pour out his power on flourishing grace. Spirit, pour out your power on flourishing grace. Let it not be our own strength. Let it not be our own might. Your will be done. Your power, your strength. Oh, that the Spirit pour out his power upon us. Paul writes this to the church in Colossae. He says, we have not ceased to pray for you. We're not stopping, baby. We're, doing, we're just going to pray and pray and pray. We have not ceased to pray for you. Asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. So as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. Fully pleasing to him. Bearing fruit in every good work. And increasing in the knowledge of God. Oh, that God would help us walk in a manner worthy of him. That he would increase our hunger for righteousness. That the world would look in and see a people at Flourishing Grace, unlike any people in the world. They would see a people who are deeply concerned about their own personal righteousness, their own personal piety. That we would fight for righteousness. That we'd be righteous at home, righteous husbands, righteous wives, righteous in our offices, righteous in our workplaces, righteous in our schools, righteous in our neighborhoods. That people would look in and say, man, that's a person who is supernaturally righteous. There's a personal piety happening there. And so next second prayer is this. We see Paul pray, Father, would you increase the hunger for righteousness at Flourishing Grace? Would you help us walk in a manner worthy of you? Would you help us do that? On our own power, we cannot do it. But by your grace, we can. Lastly, the church in Ephesus. We could do this all day, but I am freezing, man. I haven't taken my hands out of my pockets like once. You guys with me? No? You guys got blankets, down jackets. Grace, you're sitting in the sun. I'm up here in the icebox. Paul writes this to the church in Ephesus. He says, I do not cease to give thanks for you. I don't stop constantly giving thanks for you. Give thanks for flourishing grace. Remembering you in my prayers that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of him. Oh, that in this hour of cultural turmoil and uncertainty, God would give us a spirit of wisdom and a greater knowledge of his supremacy. In this time where nobody knows what to do, nobody knows what's coming next. 2020 is, a, is like a pit of confusion Oh, that God would give flourishing grace, the spirit of wisdom, that we'd walk in that. 
And every step we take would be a step of confidence, knowing that we have the spirit of wisdom. That our lead shepherds have a spirit of wisdom. That our partners are walking in a spirit of wisdom. That our staff and our pastors are walking in a spirit of wisdom. And that he would increase our knowledge of him. That we would rest knowing who our God is. Knowing his supremacy over all things. And that our hearts would rest, that we would be a supernaturally peaceful people. Because we rest in our knowledge of him. We rest in knowing who he is. Knowing that the God of all things is on our side and he's with us at all times. And so we pray. We pray that flourishing grace would be filled with the power of the Spirit. We pray that flourishing grace would walk in a manner worthy of him. We pray that flourishing grace would be filled with a spirit of wisdom and a knowledge of who our God is. We must come to the place where we say, not in my church. Not in my church. Here's a simple reality. I believe that we have spiritually fallen asleep. Many of us, many, many, many people are spiritually sleepy. Even here this morning, some of you just spiritually tired. Spiritually just like not there. When was the last time you could say, man, the Spirit of God poured out power on my life? When was the last time you could say, man, God has awakened my joy and my affections to Him by the power of the gospel? When was the last time? Can you say that's true of you? Again, when was the last time we must come to the place where we say, not in my church. I'm not going to let my church be spiritually asleep. We're not going to sleep here. There's too much going on. There's too much to contend for. There's too much to fight for. We can't sleep here. Not in my life. Not in my day. Not in my time. I will contend. I'll contend. It is in this moment that we begin to truly contend for power. Spirit, move in my day. Move in my heart. Move in my church. We must become a people who contend. I know you're freezing, so I'll leave you with this quote from the Prince of Preachers, Charles Spurgeon. He says this. You are no Christian... If you do not pray, a prayerless soul is a Christless soul. Charles Haddon Spurgeon. To that end, let us pray. Let's bow our heads. This morning, I just want to give you just a quick minute where you are to contend for flourishing grace. To lift her up to your God. To acknowledge that we are nothing apart from Him. This is all a waste. It's all meaningless. It's pointless. It is a colossal failure without Him. 
So I want to encourage you this morning to go to him and contend, cry out war in prayer. Let the Spirit pour out his power upon us. Pray that the Spirit would pour out his power upon flourishing grace. That we would see the work of the Spirit in our time, in our day. That he would awaken us spiritually. Pray that prayer. Would you pray that our God would help us walk in a manner worthy of Him? That He would increase our hunger for righteousness. sin would become revolting to us. That we would see the blood of Christ poured out for our sins. And it would stir us to say, man, I want my life to be worthy of that blood. And finally, would you pray that he would give flourishing grace. That he'd give our church the spirit of wisdom. In these times that are so uncertain. In these times where everything's crazy. Nobody knows what comes next. Would we rest? in Him. Knowing that the God of all things is with us, is near to us. Father, would you make us a praying church? Would you convict our people? Would you convict me? Increase our prayer. Would we be a people who are moved to contend in this season? Would we fight in war for ourselves, for those around us who don't know you? And would we fight in prayer for our church? I pray these things and the one who loves her so much. In the name of Jesus, amen. Why don't we stand up, do some jumping jacks, sing one last song together.